Chapter Thirty Six of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Six: Religious Developments Under the Roman Empire. The soul of man under the Latin and Greek empire of the first two centuries of the Christian era was a worried and frustrated soul. Compulsion and cruelty reigned. There were pride and display but little honour, little serenity, or steadfast happiness. The unfortunate were despised and wretched, the fortunate were insecure and feverishly eager for gratifications. In a great number of cities life centred on the red excitement of the arena, where men and beasts fought and were tormented and slain. Amphitheatres are the most characteristic of Roman ruins. Life went on in that key, the uneasiness of men's hearts manifested itself in profound religious unrest. From the days when the Aryan hordes first broke in upon the ancient civilizations, it was inevitable that the old gods of the temples and priesthoods should suffer great adaptations or disappear. In the course of hundreds of generations, the agricultural peoples of the brunette civilizations had shaped their lives and thoughts to the temple-centered life. Observances and the fear of disturbed routines, sacrifices and mysteries, dominated their minds. Their gods seem monstrous and illogical to our modern minds, because we belong to an Aryanized world. But to these older peoples, these deities had the immediate conviction and vividness of things seen in an intense dream, the conquest of one city-state by another in Sumeria or early Egypt meant a change, or a renaming of gods and goddesses, but left the shape and spirit of the worship intact. There was no change in its general character. The figures in the dream changed, but the dream went on, and it was the same sort of dream. And the early Semitic conquerors were sufficiently akin in spirit to the Sumerians, to take over the religion of the Mesopotamian civilization, they subjugated, without any profound alteration. Egypt was never indeed subjugated to the extent of a religious revolution. Under the Ptolemies and under the Caesars, her temples and altars and priesthoods remained essentially Egyptian. So long as conquests went on between people of similar social and religious habits, it was possible to get over the clash between the god of this temple and region and the god of that by a process of grouping or assimilation. If the two gods were alike in character, they were identified. It was really the same god under another name, said the priests and the people. This fusion of gods is called Theocracia, and the age of the great conquests of the thousand years B.C., was an age of theocracia. Over wide areas the local gods were displaced by, or rather they were swallowed up in, a general god. So that when at last Hebrew prophets in Babylon proclaimed one god of righteousness in all the earth, men's minds were fully prepared for that idea. But often the gods were too dissimilar for such an assimilation, and then, they were grouped together in some plausible relationship. A female god, 
and the Aegean world, before the coming of the Greek was much addicted to mother-gods, would be married to a male god, and an animal god or a star god would be humanized, and the animal or astronomical aspect. The serpent under the sun or the star made into an ornament or a symbol. Or the god of a defeated people would become a malignant antagonist to the brighter gods. The history of theology is full of such adaptations, compromises and rationalizations of once local gods. As Egypt developed from city-states into one united kingdom, there was much of this theocratia. The chief god, so to speak, was Osiris, a sacrificial harvest god of whom Pharaoh was supposed to be the earthly incarnation. Osiris was represented as repeatedly dying and rising again. He was not only the seed and the harvest, but also, by a natural extension of thought, the means of human immortality. Among his symbols was the wide-winged scarabius beetle, which buries its eggs to rise again, and also the effulgent sun, which sets to rise. Later on, he was to be identified with Apis, the sacred bull. Associated with him was the goddess Isis. Isis was also Hathor, a cow goddess, and the crescent moon, and the star of the sea. Osiris dies, and she bears a child, Horus, who is also a hawk god, and the dawn, and who grows to become Osiris again. The effigies of Isis represents her as bearing the infant Horus in her arms, and standing on the crescent moon. These are not logical relationships, but they are devised by the human mind before the development of hard and systematic thinking, and they have a dreamlike coherence. Beneath this triple group there are other and darker Egyptian gods, bad gods, the dog-headed Anubis, black knight and the like, devourers, tempters, enemies of God and man. Every religious system does in the course of time fit itself to the shape of the human soul, and there can be no doubt that out of these illogical and even uncouth symbols, Egyptian people were able to fashion for themselves ways of genuine devotion and consolation. The desire for immortality was very strong in the Egyptian mind, and the religious life of Egypt turned on that desire. The Egyptian religion was an immortality religion, as no other religion had ever been. As Egypt went down under foreign conquerors, and the Egyptian gods ceased to have any satisfactory political significance, the craving for a life of compensations hereafter intensified. After the Greek conquest, the new city of Alexandria became the center of Egyptian religious life, and indeed, of the religious life of the whole Hellenic world. A great temple, the Serapeum, was set up by Ptolemy I, at which a sort of trinity of gods was worshipped. These were Serapis, who was Osiris Apis rechristened, Isis and Horus, these were not regarded as separate gods, but as three aspects of one god, and Serapis was identified with the Greek Zeus, the Roman Jupiter, and the Persian sun-god. 
this worship spread wherever the hellenic influence extended even into north india and western china the idea of immortality an immortality of compensations and consolation was eagerly received by a world in which the common life was hopelessly wretched serapis was called the saviour of souls after death said the hymns of that time we are still in the care of his providence isis attracted many devotees her images stood in her temples as queen of heaven bearing the infant horse in her arms candles were burned before her votive offerings were made to her shaven priests consecrated to celibacy waited on her altar the rise of the roman empire opened the western european world to this growing cult the temples of serapis isis the chanting of the priests and the hope of immortal life followed the roman standards to scotland and holland but there were many rivals to the serapis isis religion prominent among these was mithraism this was a religion of persian origin and it centered upon some now forgotten mysteries about mithras sacrificing a sacred and benevolent bull here we seem to have something more primordial than the complicated and sophisticated serapis isis beliefs we are carried back directly to the blood sacrifices of the heliolithic stage in human culture the bull upon the mitraic monuments always bleeds copiously from a wound in its side and from this blood springs new life the votary to mithraism actually bathed in the blood of the sacrificial bull at his initiation he went beneath a scaffolding upon which a bull was killed so that the blood could actually run down on him both these religions and the same is true of many other of the numerous parallel cults that sought the allegiance of the slaves and citizens under the earlier roman emperors are personal religions they aim at personal salvation and personal immortality the older religions were not personal like that they were social the older fashion of divinity was god or goddess of the city first or of the state and only secondarily of the individual the sacrifices were a public and not a private function they concerned collective practical needs in this world in which we live but the greeks first and now the romans had pushed religion out of politics guided by the egyptian tradition religion had retreated to the other world those new private immortality religions took all the heart and emotion out of the old state religions but they did not actually replace them a typical city under the earlier roman emperors would have a number of temples to all sorts of gods there might be a temple to jupiter of the capital the great god of rome and there would be probably one to the reigning caesar for the caesars had learned from the pharaohs the possibility of being gods in such temples a cold and stately political worship went on one would go and make an offering and burn a pinch of incense to show one's loyalty but it would be to the temple of isis the dear queen of heaven one would go with the burthen of one's private troubles for advice and relief 
there might be local and eccentric gods. Seville, for example, long affected the worship of the old Carthaginian Venus. In a cave or an underground temple, there would certainly be an altar to Mithras, attended by legionaries and slaves. And probably also there would be a synagogue, where the Jews gathered to read their Bible and uphold their faith in the unseen God of all the earth. Sometimes there would be trouble with the Jews about the political side of the state religion. They held that their God was a jealous God, intolerant of idolatry, and they would refuse to take part in the public sacrifices to Caesar. They would not even salute the Roman standards for fear of idolatry. In the East, long before the time of Buddha, there had been ascetics, men and women who gave up most of the delights of life, who repudiated marriage and property, and sought spiritual powers and an escape from the stresses and mortifications of the world in abstinence, pain, and solitude. Buddha himself set his face against ascetic extravagances, but many of his disciples followed a monkish life of great severity. Obscure Greek cults practiced similar disciplines, even to the extent of self-mutilation. Asceticism appeared in the Jewish communities of Judea and Alexandria, also in the first century B.C., Communities of men abandoned the world and gave themselves to austerities and mystical contemplation. Such was the sect of the Essenes. Throughout the first and second centuries A.D., there was an almost worldwide resort to such repudiations of life, a universal search for salvation from the distresses of the time. The old sense of an established order, the old confidence in priest and temple, and law and custom had gone. Amidst the prevailing slavery, cruelty, fear, anxiety, waste, display, and hectic self-indulgence, went this epidemic of self-disgust and mental insecurity, this agonized search for peace, even at the price of renunciation and voluntary suffering. This it was that filled the Serapium with weeping penitence, and brought the converts into the gloom and gore of the Mithraic cave. End of chapter 36